This is Creative Mornings, a podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by TriStudio. TriStudio wants you to have more time for your art, craft, and creative projects, and here's how. Try something creative in a private, local lesson tailored to your goals, or teach what you love doing and get paid for your time. Together, we can change how the world thinks about work by supporting play. Try, teach, or do both. It's free to join. Sign up at TriStudio.co. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and our episode this week features John Zinser. You'll get to know who that is in one minute, but one thing I'm really excited about for this week's episode is, for once, I was able to sit down face-to-face with our guest. Because we deal with so many different speakers from all over the country and even the world, our only option to introduce you to these amazing people is often via Skype. And while those conversations are great, there's really nothing quite like being in the same room as someone. And I think that this week's episode showcases that nicely. I also had the chance to have a few other in-person conversations, which you'll hear throughout the season. John Zinser gave a talk on the topic of risk to the Creative Mornings Charleston chapter in South Carolina. He was in New York City on business, so we met at Creative Mornings HQ in Brooklyn, New York, and he told us how he happened upon this organization. Uh, In Charleston, I was really fortunate... um Went to a talk, really just sort of saw the subject, didn't know anything about Creative Mornings. And this is just about a year ago, I'm going to say. And the talk was great, and the feeling was great, and the energy was great. And I had just done a TEDx talk. And having done that and looking into more opportunities, I um, made a connection with Yvonne Lima, who is the curator for um, Creative Mornings Charleston. And we just sat down and started talking um, maybe a couple of months later about what was coming up and talks. And I remember he, he dropped the next six subjects on me. And I think I did one minute on each of the subjects. And he was just sort of shaking his head going like, which one do you want? And I, was, I, I, did, I said, I want it to be easy and useful for you. So I ended up with risk. That's really how it came together. Oh, that's it. That's it. That's interesting to me because in your talk, you do an incredible job of staying on topic. And of course, everyone is dealing in risk every day. Everybody, yes. But I was surprised to find out that risk really doesn't appear anywhere in your job title. No, not at all. Um, my, my title doesn't really relate to risk in one sense, but on the other sense, as you said, everybody's day includes it. My focus is fundamentally on human communications and conflict management. So it's really not about my risk. It's about everybody else's in part. And for me, the risk has always been the willingness to connect with those people who are struggling at the moment, those people who are facing something that they're not quite getting the hold of or they're not quite overcoming the gaps between us. And so my job is to be there and help build a healthy communicative relationship, whether it's interrupted by conflict or culture or organizational design. I'm simply trying to help people connect past the level they currently are on. And so for the listeners who don't know who you are, what is it exactly that you do? I'm a consultant. I run Pacifica Human Communications. I'm co-founder along with Andrea Skank. Um, So I'm called principal and she's called managing principal. So we work around the globe with large organizations, small organizations, individuals, whoever is looking for that opportunity to overcome the things that keep us apart. And... You, are, you and I are fortunate. I've already mentioned that we're in New York City speaking right now, but what is it that brings you here from Charleston? 
Uh, I teach in the master's program uh-huh. at Columbia for negotiation and conflict resolution. It's a wonderful opportunity. I get to come up to New York three times a semester, do a little lecturing, do a little classwork. <laughs> I've had some really fantastic students over the last six years that I've been doing that. And it gets me to New York, which is exciting. And that's why I'm able to be in Brooklyn today. So it's a it's a double gift. So your talk, which we're about to get into in a little bit, it doesn't reveal too much of your history and some of the risks you've encountered. So I'm curious if you'd be interested in sharing a little of that before we get into it. So I think it's important right now, meaning this time in our country, in our lives, I'm very fortunate. I'm a privileged person. I know that. And I know that risk for me is not the same as risk for a lot of people. Um, I've come through some very wonderful experiences and I've had a few tricky moments as well. But I think the big risk that I took that was important that leads to where I am today um, starts as an 11-year-old watching the Olympic coverage on ABC in 1972 and watching an up-close and personal segment that they did for a long time about the Japanese women's volleyball team. And I was just sort of startled by how different the people were and how could anybody behave like that. I became a Japanophile at 11, and all the way through my college career, I was pursuing all the information I could about life in Japan. And immediately after college, I went. I um, was on a program for the Ministry of Education in Japan, and I was there for about three years, two years with that program, and another year as a headhunter in Tokyo. And it taught me a great deal about being different. It taught me a great deal about standing out. It also taught me some really important lessons about how to connect and what matters to other people. Returned to the United States, worked as a translator for a time, and realized, you know what? This isn't the answer. I knew the words were going back and forth because I was the one in the middle doing the word work, but the culture was misunderstood. Different people didn't know about the other person. So that's really what launched Pacifica, and launched me into this work of trying to help people overcome the differences, the things that get between us. Started with intercultural communications, especially that Japanese-American relationship. Moved on to other countries, helping other people from different places connect. Then from that work, it developed into organizational advancement, organizational effectiveness, a lot of strategy, norms, vision, values. And in that work, I became fascinated by persuasion, And how do you get people to do things you need done when you have no power? So I've got a master's degree in conflict management with a focus originally on negotiation. Then I moved that to organizational conflict management. So that's all comes together. Mm -hmm. And that's really, it sounds like three different things, but it's one thing. It's putting people in healthy communicative relationships, helping them find a way to connect with the other people around them. And I think that's a perfect opportunity to lead into John's talk. There's a lot more from our conversation. We'll play it back after where we dig into the power of face-to-face communication. And we also get into a bit of American politics. John uses a lot of slides, but I do think he does a great job describing them for the listeners. So I kept them in. And I will say, you might want to grab a pen and paper or be prepared with your smartphone for a great crowd participation exercise that John conducted with the audience. With that, here's John Zinser from April of 2016 at Creative Mornings Charleston on Risk. Do you have 20 minutes to save the world, to change the world? Do you have 20 minutes for that? Because I do. When I started thinking about this, I started thinking, what could I talk about that's risky for me, that's different from me? 
I wanted this to be a little off my regular. So should I talk about something I don't know anything about? Should I talk about something that would make us all really, really uncomfortable, something we'd really have to struggle with? Or should I talk about my own condition, my own crises, my own problems, something that's really torn at me over the course of my life? Or should I talk about something that, I don't know, we might be able to do something about fairly quickly? And what I decided was, yes. <laughs> I wanted to talk about all of those in 20 minutes. I hope you'll come with me. Struck by lightning three times, the small boat I'm sailing from Marblehead, Massachusetts to Halifax, Canada has no power. Engines gone, batteries dead, lights, everything gone. That means all the thousands of dollars of equipment that we have on the boat to tell us where we are and where we're going don't work. They're just dead weight. There's 50 miles hours breeze going on, which means there's this whistling sound in your ear all the time. Lightning is the only light we have. And some of the bolts are going off so close to the boat, you can hear the water sizzle. Somebody tell me why this isn't risky. Anybody got a guess? Why is that not risky? Either my telling you or the story itself. Anybody? Say again? Because right I'm here right now. Thank you. <laughs> I did that speech last year. That's the opening to my TEDx talk. I did that sale 35 years ago. I was a kid. Huh? You don't get to do risk twice. Risk can never be the same thing a second time. That story was risky once. That sale was risky that day. If I did that race again, it's not the same risk. I have the experience. Even in the context of a game where the rules are pretty clear and pretty simple, filling the inside straight in poker, hitting double sixes in backgammon just when you need it, dropping a three-point shot with one second to go in a basketball game, none of that is the same risk the second time. You can't repeat risk. You can only do it that first time. Let me ask you something. Was it a risk for you to come here, here, right now? Did you think about it long and hard? I was like, bing, I'm going. <laughs> if you thought about it for a long time, what changed for you as the time went by? If you just clicked it, what was the reason for that? Did you know why it was instantaneous? Some people would say that you never get to make that choice without some kind of knowledge and input. If you know Creative Mornings, either because you've been before in Charleston or maybe in one of those other 138 cities, just did the math, <laughs> you know what you're getting offered. Maybe that's what helped you make the choice. You know Yvonne and this whole team and what they put together. Maybe that's what moved you through that risk. Because there are people who would have loved to have spent a little more time in bed this morning. Or do something else. But I got to say, I'm standing here looking at the sun on the water. It's a pretty wonderful thing for me. Or was it my trustworthy picture that they kindly put up <laughs> on the website? <laughs> did you know anything about me? And did you have any clue what I was going to talk about other than the word risk? Which, let me tell you, having wrestled with it for about two months now, 
It's a big word. There's a lot to it. But what went into your choosing? I raised the team and Yvonne and myself because I think the ultimate risk, perhaps, that we all have to deal with as human beings is who do we choose to trust? And maybe even more importantly, how do we choose who we're going to trust? Is there any more human risk than that? But it turns out we're actually really bad at risk as human beings. We're actually not good at all about figuring out what's risky and what isn't. Let's, let me show you a couple of thoughts. You're going to Yosemite this summer. Congratulations, you're off to Yosemite for a vacation. And I want to ask you, which of these is riskier to your vacation? Bears or buffalo? Left hand, bears. Right hand, buffalo. More people are killed every year in Yosemite by buffalo than bears. I had no idea. Which is riskier, this giant summer tornado or your backyard pool? <laughs> Left hand, tornado. Right hand, pool. Oddly, the pool is so much more deadly than the summer tornado. In fact, more people will die in pools this year then we'll die from tornadoes, bears, and buffalo combined. <laughs> Why do we think that way? Why would we think that, ooh, the tornado is less frightening than, ah, the pool? <laughs> it partly has to do with how often we hear about it, and unfortunately, drownings are so common, they don't write about them in the newspaper anymore. You can't go online and see late-breaking coverage. But that tornado hits and you know what's going to happen. We're going to get a 24-hour news cycle about it where you're going to be force-fed it whether you like it or not. That affects how we think about this. That affects how we think about everything. So we have to start to wonder, how do we measure risk or think about risk or track it? How can we possibly give it a score, a weight, or a measure? And it is one of those things that regardless of how you do it, and you're going to do it in a few minutes. You make it up every time. It's a very human process. But I, one of the things that's so cool about risk is it is its concept, it's a verb, and it's a feeling. And if you don't get in touch with that feeling of risk, those three stories that we heard, there was a feeling to those moments. I don't know, as you're living. So in one sense, isn't the true measure of risk life itself? I want to go back to the coming here part and talk very specifically about that. How did you get here? Anybody walk? One. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very glad. Did you stay on the sidewalk? Did you walk in the crosswalks? Did you be very careful with that? Did anybody bike? Yes. Couple. Yay. More. Good. Helmet? Little flashy blinky thing? Right. Did you take the same route you would always take here? Did you think about a different way and the risk that might be involved in coming here differently? You could have come down the park, you could have come down this street, could have turned there. Think about all the things we do to control risk. 
The sidewalk, the crosswalk, the helmet, the blinky thing. Did anybody drive? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. I won't let the, the, the Charleston Moves people know. Um, but think about the Jersey barriers, the stoplights, all the, the road signs, the police. Aren't they all there as supposedly risk mitigator? Look around. Did anybody have a different risk by driving here than you did? I'm going to tell you absolutely it did. With all that we do to try to protect risk, some people get risk choices when others don't. But think about those things that we do endlessly to try to protect ourselves from the risk of walking or biking or taking the wrong route. And think, what if you didn't have that choice? Some of you have probably seen these numbers recently, and if they don't scare you, they ought to. This is the numbers from roughly the last four years. State of South Carolina has something they call a non-citation traffic stop. It's when they stop people but don't give them a ticket for something being wrong. North Charleston is number one in the state going away with 146,000 non-citation traffic stops. It's easier to say than I'm making it over the last four, approximately four years. Charleston is second at 125,000. The next closest city, which is roughly the same size as Charleston, is Columbia. They do it 33,000 times. Wait a minute, what? 125, 146, 33. Right there we've got a problem. Line two. The percent of stops where the driver was black versus the percent of the city population that was black. What if the risk you are running into is something you don't have any control over? Somebody's taken that away from you. Think about it. Feel it. That means for somebody driving in Greenville, South Carolina, the, the risk is one. It's a standard. In Colombia, the risk is actually less than one. It's only 88% likelihood. But if you're an African-American driving in Charleston, you're 2.7 times more likely to be stopped for a non-citation violation. And if you're in North Charleston, it's four times. And it's actually even worse in Mount Pleasant, but I didn't want to put it on a slide. <laughs> Damn serious effect of risk. What would you do if you were four times more likely to be stopped? Would you have come? Would you have stayed home? Would you run that risk? I wanted to give you a slight different graphic representation on it. Look at those numbers. They're doubled for the youthful categories on the one side. But this interesting thing happens at the age of 76. We stop old white people more than we stop old black people which I don't really know what it means, but I just found it fascinating. <laughs> it's a turnover. I don't know why. Take the keys from your older parents. But this has to have you think. You've got to wonder about what it's like to live with risk every single day that you don't have any choice in. I didn't have to get on that boat to go to Halifax. But what if you just have to run that risk to live, to spend every day here? 
Brian Stevenson was here just a few weeks ago. Brian runs a remarkable outfit that reaches back into court records and tries to get people off of death row who they feel were wrongfully convicted. He had four really simple principles for overcoming inequality in America, and the first one was get proximate. Put your hand on those who are injured. Get close to the problem. Get close to the struggle. He felt that that would change your viewpoint. And I have to absolutely agree with him. If you put yourself at risk, and if you put yourself with those who are at risk, you change. Your viewpoint changes. When you hurt, when you take a risk, your entire perspective changes. When you are, you can read the bottom line, but you can also translate it as fat, dumb, and happy, and I tend to be so almost all of those. <laughs> your perspective shifts. There is, of course, risk in connecting with people. Standing up here, making a public speech is risky. For some people, it's the most dangerous thing in the world. For me, it's kind of what I do. I kind of like it. But to connect with someone is always risky. To connect with the world can be highly risky. And I mean the world in an environmental sense. How could we be here on Earth Day and not at least mention it? Think about that, to get connected to your environment. The world of belief and faith, I struggle with that connection. I struggle with that connection hard. I had to say to my minister recently, I'm not sure I believe and I'm not sure God wants me to. That was a risk. But I'm really glad I took that risk and it'll never be the same again. Connecting with feelings, your own or others, with the pain that's actually out there, that's hugely risky. Connecting with beauty, I have stood in this very building and cried over something that I've seen on one of these walls. Honestly, I've also cried at Hallmark commercials. <laughs> but wait a minute. What about the risk in separation? What about the risk in being separated from each other? What about the risk in separating from our environment and our world? And I can't stand here looking at this and not think, wait a minute. What if that body of water, and you should look, Yvonne tried to ask you to, you should really look. What if everything that they say is true, and I believe it to be so, and that's going to go up a foot, and another foot, or a third foot? What is that risk going to mean to us right here? And it might happen inside the next 50 years. I'm unlikely, but you all are highly likely to be seeing that. Belief and faith. What about being disconnected from that? What about being disconnected from God? And that can be a lot of different gods. That could be the God who is good orderly direction and keeps you clean and sober. That could be the God who died for your sins or the God who got your tribe up and out of Egypt or the God that moved that mountain closer to Muhammad. Or that could be God, Gaia, this planet, our home, this place? Are you connecting in any way to any of that? Or are you separated from it? And how does your risk change because of that? Are you separating and defending yourself, isolating yourself from feeling, from hurting? Have you kept yourself from beauty? I hope not. Because you all are 
the designers, the artists, the authors, the builders. I hope you take that risk to stay connected to beauty. But it strikes me that today and going forward, the risk of separation is so much greater than the risk of connection. From now on, I'm going to challenge you. Take the risk of connection. Let go the risk of separation. We need that. We need connection like this in creative mornings. We need connection with all of those different things that I was just talking about. We have got to find a way to take the risk of connection. Separation is no longer an acceptable risk. We are, in fact, the only species who, by consistently inflicting upon ourselves separation, has the chance not only to end our own species, but all species. Talk about risky business. Think about it. Every form of violence is effectively a type of separation. Dylan Roof stood a mile from here and inflicted his sense of separation on nine other people. Walter Scott and his broken taillight 10.7 miles from here. His taillight was out. His light goes out. That was a form of separation that ended in violence. Every form of violence is a type of separation. And I need you to stop that, because you're the only people who can do it. There is this general theory that changes for communities, for companies, for big groups, only start in one place, one person. Think about it. No town like Charleston or any place else instantly makes a change. They don't instantly take the risk to overcome their separation. It starts with one person. It starts with one line. It starts with one thought. We have separated ourselves from each other forever. We can't keep doing it. That's an unacceptable risk. So that's why I'm putting the challenge to you all. Again, authors, designers, artists, connectors. With what you do, you weave us together. You find a way for us to connect. I'm challenging you all to keep going with it. Go even bigger with it. Because truthfully, connection is greater than separation. Are you at a place where you're ready to bloom with this? Are you at a place where you're willing to risk and grow and be even more beautiful to realize that connection. I'd like to see if we can find out. You all should have gotten a beautiful blank pristine card. We're going old school. For those of you who can digitize on your phones, whatever, please feel free. But do me a favor, right across the top and do it this way. Stand it up, that's vertical. Thank you, took a second. Right across the top, I need. And I'm gonna teach you a risk management equation in one second. You've got I need across the top. A, B, C, right across, D, E, across there. I'd like you to write just a sentence for each of these or a few words. I need. 
What's something you need to take that risk? What's something you need from yourself first? That should be A. What's something you need in B for this town or your town? It may be Charleston, it might be Mount Pleasant. It may be the town you moved from in Minnesota or where you started with that van when you and she got together and moved here. Wherever it is, pick a place, a political entity. What's something you need for that place? We've talked about it. It's Earth Day. C, something you need for the environment. D, something you need for that spirit, that connection. And I come back again and ask you to do it again because it's never the same risk twice. Something you need for you, from me, big me. I'm going to give you all the time you need in about one minute to do that. and the leaf blowers gave us white noise. So most risk management is actually done in the negative. They ask you to determine the cost and then multiply it by the likelihood of a bad outcome. That to me seems like a bad risk to take. I've flipped it around for you and gone for an opportunity rather than a risk score. I'd like you to just look at each of those things that you wrote down from A to E and give it two scores between one and ten. One being not so good, ten being wow. What's the likelihood of the desired outcome? What's, it po what's the possibility in your mind right now that it could happen? 10 is absolutely, it's already happened or it's happening. I'm in the midst of it. One is, I am kidding myself. And then I'd like you to multiply it by the quality or the quantity of the benefit you think would happen for you and for others if it did. 10 being yippee, everybody's going to go home with cake and cookies. One is going to be, oh, it's not so good for everybody else. So just do a little quick multiplication. Your score is going to be somewhere for each of those five things between 1 and 100. And if you score 500, we should talk. <laughs> and if you score 5, wow, we really should talk. Math's not my strong suit, so I'll give you about 30 seconds to do all of that. So look at your scores. What three things can you do? You could pick the three high scores because that might be really rewarding. You might take the three low scores because that's the kind of person you are. You want to take on the big challenge. 
You could take the high, the middle, and the low. But change what you write now from I need to what you can do about it. What can you do? What risk can you take to affect that? Jot it down. It should be roughly the same thing as written in A, but just reframed from I need this to I can do this about that. I can take this action, or I could take that action. Give yourself a guideline. You had no idea when you arrived the risk you were taking. Got it? Close? Maybe almost kind of sort of? Turn your paper over. <clears throat> Put it on the other axis. Great, big, startling letters. I will. I will. Across the top. You can go back and forth if you have to. But look at one of those cans. Look at one of those cans and turn it into I will. Write it down that way. I will work to keep the ocean lower. I will do something to change the risk that the people of color in my community are facing at the hands of their own police force. That's mine. May not be yours. Think about the one that squeezes your heart. Think about the one that hurts your head. Think about the one that tightens you all over. Pick something. Write it down. Write it down. I'm going to say, I will. You are going to say your thing. We are going to declare the risk we are about to take to everybody in this room and to this world. I'm going to say I will. You're going to say your thing. I will. It might have sounded like a mishmash to you. Standing here, it washed over me. It feels like hope. Do me a favor. Risk it. I'm not going to grab the Nike line, but I prefer it this way. <laughs> Risk it. I want to say thank you for giving me these few minutes to talk with you all. Thank you. More from my conversation with John in a minute, but first, we have to take care of some business. And this episode is made possible by Audible. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash creative mornings. Personally, I've never read an audiobook, so to help me talk it out is a member of the Creative Mornings New York City community and a big-time Audible fan, Prescott Perez-Fox. I've been a subscriber probably about eight or nine years and my library goes back pretty deep and it covers a lot of weird categories, biographies, fiction, business books. You know, I read for a, a period of time, I sort of got really into finance. I read like any book that had millionaire in the title and then obviously <laughs> burned myself out with it. <laughs> so what are you reading now or is it what are you listening to? I guess either works. I've never had to ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, goodness. Well, 
I just fiended a bunch of Star Wars books, and the cool thing okay. about Star Wars books on Audible is that they do them like a radio play. So I guess they get licensing for all the sound effects. So you're actually listening to this book, and then the next thing you know, there's like laser blasts and zoom, zoom. R two D two is beeping. I, I can't even do it. It's and then Chewbacca comes in. And he's like, and then you know, so it's all like mixed into the story, which is actually very unique because not every book has that. Well, if that doesn't sell some Audible subscriptions, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash creative mornings. This episode is also made possible by SiteGround. With web hosting services custom tailored for a variety of projects, SiteGround makes the web stuff easy so you can focus on staying creative. Take Aid Mills, for instance. He hosts a podcast in the UK that focuses on local creatives called The Design Jones. The Design Jones was born out of me just not having any love for design anymore. And I met a guy called James O'Connell, who I did the first episode with. And when he was talking about his career and everything he'd done, it was just absolutely fascinating to me. So if that could turn around my love for creativity, then surely there's someone else out there that's going to do the same thing for. And SiteGround understands the needs of the creative community. That's the place they seem to feel at home and everyone I've recommended them to and have used, they've all been creatives and they just found it an easy experience for us to use that aren't necessarily tech savvy. The web kind of scares them, but they find SiteGround a bit more of a friendlier place to be when it gets to do hosting. And what would you say is one of the main things that sets SiteGround apart from its competitors? From the hosting I had before, which was just really slow, clunky, and it was just hard to kind of get anything moving on it. It kind of feels like you're not a priority or anything. You're just a small fish in a big ponds, whereas SiteGround make you feel like you're the, the main person there. Aid is right. And to show you just how supportive SiteGround is, right now you can get up to 60% off at SiteGround.com slash creative. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. So I'm here with John Zinser, and there's still much to discuss, but there's something that you say very early on in your talk, and made me laugh actually, because when I think about it, I really don't ever consider a different route home. Uh-huh. Like some people may be different than others and, and change it up. But for me, it's really, you know, we get into this habit and it's, that's, that's what it is. We don't really change it up ever. Humankind is built around, in part, success of mitigating risk. You know, we don't come with claws. We don't come with shark teeth. Our job to survive was to outthink, and a big piece of that is simply outthinking risk. But it's fascinating as we've advanced, I hope we can use that term as a culture, how much risk we've tried to put back into the equation through extreme sports or whatever it might be. (laughs) And I think a piece of that is we have bubble-wrapped ourselves in so many ways that there is this voice inside a lot of us saying, no, I need a little more of that. I need to feel a little more of that. If we're simply conscious about it, we'll change our nature to it. And I I hate to say it, I think a lot of what's gone on in modernity, the digital reality, parenting today, there's so much work at insulation and grouping to keep the risk of being a person at bay. We don't connect the same way that we used to, in part because we've put these things between us and we've put these things around our small groups so we don't connect with the other groups. Coming out of last week's election, I think we have an extremely potent example of that. Apparently, a lot of people just didn't understand 
what a lot of the other people were thinking and experiencing. And people were able to construct a reality and think one thing was going to happen, in part because they didn't take the risk of understanding what was going on for the other. Well, spoiler alert here, because we will be featuring um, Simon Sinek later in the season. Uh-huh. But uh, he and I had a Skype call actually on election day. Oh, my goodness. But it was early in the morning. Nothing had happened yet. Right, but nothing still, had happened You were yet. all sitting there. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, he says something interesting in his talk about how the situation we're in in this country is our own fault. We get the politicians that we deserve. I, I think there has to be a sense of, and this comes to the, the risk discussion, responsibility is a risk. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more we've seen people working to outsource responsibility or deny responsibility, which is in a form rejecting risk. And I, I wouldn't dare <laughs> contradict Sinek. I think it's important. It is a responsibility and it is individual. And you see with those razor thin margins from last week that every vote really does count and that matters. But that raises also the systemic side of it. The fact of the matter is, and this comes back to my talk, there are risks that certain people have enforced upon them or forced upon them that other people don't. And when we talk about the Voting Rights Act and how it's being enforced or not enforced, and when we talk about 880 less polling places across the country this election than the preceding one, those are not individual responsibilities. Those are systemic responsibilities. But the only reason they became systemic is because individuals didn't do something or did do something earlier on. Nothing becomes institutionalized without an individualized action originally. Mm -hmm. Institutions don't just start taking action of their own. And it doesn't, you don't get systemic racism or systemic voter suppression just because of the institution. You get it from people. And so we do have to look at that. Right. And to go back to something you mentioned earlier about how we're not communicating the way we used to, even something like this, which I mentioned, we usually do via Skype, but you and I have this opportunity to sure. look each other sure. in the eye and, and, I, and get the feeling. I hadn't thought about it, but here's exactly what we're talking about. The sense of connection that you and I are able to generate sitting three feet apart, able to look each other actually in the eye. And Skype is great. I have, yeah. I, you know, I've had clients now in Europe and Asia that I probably wouldn't have been able to service from Charleston, South Carolina without Skype. It wouldn't have been the same. But it's also not the same as right here, right now. Even with a laptop, some earphones, and a couple of microphones between right. us, we're still on a different level. Yeah, and like, I can look you in the eye, and it's not a glitchy eye. <laughs> not the glitchy eye. I like that. And I think there's, yeah, there's something simply to that. And I'm not going to get into the percentages. There's a lot of research people talking about this percentage or that percentage, how much of the message falls away when you're on the telephone or when you're on Skype or when you're all that. It's a lot. And you simply can tell the difference between being with a person, talking to a person this close. It's simply a different thing. Totally. And I know we've fallen off topic here a little bit, I think. <laughs> I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we're falling off the topic at all because the core piece of the talk... The risk of separation today is greater than the risk of connection. And that plays on a lot of levels. And the risk of separation is actually in, the separation is increased by these tools which allow us to communicate on a level but don't necessarily allow us to connect. And if we don't get this straight, if we don't do this math problem correctly, 
and we continue down the path of separating from each other when we think we're connecting more and more, when we think the Skype has brought us closer, when we think the text has brought us closer, and we were just talking mm-hmm. out in the hall about all the different tools, right. WhatsApp and Snapchat, and they keep going and they keep going. And they're again, I'm not bashing them. They have a place and they have a point, but they're not the end point. And I feel like today we are celebrating and pushing that without consideration, which is what we were talking about, all the things we do to mitigate risk mm-hmm. without thinking about it. Those things create a risk when we think they're ending one. You've got to look at that math with great care. Right. And you mentioned texting. Like that's That's got to be the big one these days as, the, as far as miscommunication goes, in, especially in relationships. But you and I both know, and everybody out here who's listening to this, have you ever gotten the text or sent the text? And you're like, no, 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 no. Of course. Because you said something that could be translated so differently by somebody in a different place at a different time in a different emotional state. Right. And that's the difference. You and I are building a reality right at the moment. We are in this endless negotiation back and forth that leads us to this feeling. When you send a text to someone you haven't seen in three weeks, and it has 40 words in it, and they're trying to build a whole reality around it. Yeah. Messaging and communication and humanity is more important than that. I'm not saying don't text. Right. I'm saying the other part matters too. Yeah, and you're creating risk by not having that conversation over the phone versus texting. Absolutely text. you are. It's like <laughs> the, text, the text we're talking about, you know, the, the text that the person misreads, you have multiplied the stress in that relationship. You have introduced <laughs> a risk into it. How many people have probably lost their key relationship over oh stuff like God. that? I mean, think yeah. of it. But we think we are reducing it because, oh, well, I've kept in touch with them. I've texted them 42 times in the last 12 minutes. Maybe, maybe not. We just have to be open-minded to it probably increased it and it probably decreased it at the same time. And it's a vicious cycle because we keep doing this to ourselves in relationships, I think because one person thinks they're lessening the risk. Exactly. Like they're keeping a level head. And this is the important thing to remember. We don't actually take an action. We don't buy or sell something because we agree on the price. We do it because we disagree on the price. You think it's more valuable than I do. That's why I'm willing to give you $5,000 for your lousy car. The fact of the matter is we do that in relationships. We do that with everything all the time. It's not because we agree usually that we move forward. It's because we find the overlap of disagreement. Just the same way that data isn't useful when it all lines up. It's the differences in the data that tells us the story. And that is even, we have to explore the risk of that distinction to know what we're going to do next. So that text that you sent that gets mistranslated is probably working towards an agreement, but we didn't understand what we were actually disagreeing on, which is what will help us move forward more. And so let me take this data point that you're making and direct it to how I sort of see this election situation. I'm not as bothered by the change in the tide, right? Like data has proven that after a two-term Democrat, you're likely going to see a change in the party. But what gets me is how blatantly foul a person Donald Trump has portrayed himself and how that was either applauded or looked past by voters. And that's back to what we're saying about separation. Data can separate you from reality in a way that can make reality a lot worse. Some of the feelings that I know people are having right now that are so hard, in addition to uh, 
this could have been the first female president. That's huge for so many people. But part of the problem that made it worse was expectations were built and framed and reinforced and then proven wrong. Um, I, I've got to credit my wife. She gets very frustrated when I spend too much time with my head in the GPS when we're going someplace, when I have it on the phone or whatever. And she's saying, look up, get your eyes up and look, there's the sign for where we're going. Stop looking into the phone. Sometimes you're better off walking a few miles, looking at the signs that are around you. than you are staring at the screen again, crunching the big data. I know it has power and it has value, but it doesn't replace reality. So I want to get back to the Charleston talk that you gave because I love the exercise you use with the audience. And a lot of time, these kind of interactions are, are short, they're in the moment, but what you're having them do is sort of set these goals. And my question is, if anybody has reached out to you or followed through since your talk. It's funny you say that. Actually, there has. Um, again, my wife was at an event and was talking and somebody said, oh, I was at his talk. He, he changed my life. And she said, oh, please tell me more. <laughs> um, and, and the woman said, I used to do a lot of art, but life had moved on, changed. I was a little older, and I hadn't, hadn't been doing anything. And on the card, the one thing I wrote down is I will. She had written down, I will return to my art, something to that effect. I, I, I hope I haven't misquoted her too badly. And the day she was at this event with Andrea, she said, I sold my first piece since I started doing art again in April from, from John's talk. So it's, it's, it's a person. I know there have been some others as well. That, to me, made the whole thing above and beyond worthwhile. And if anybody else from hearing that or from watching that did the exercise and has done something, I hope you'll get back to me and tell me what you did. I just I want to celebrate people who took the risk and got something done and I hope it's as cool as selling a piece of art or I hope it's as uplifting as it seemed to have been for her. And that's why I loved it so much because this podcast is bringing that exercise to a whole new audience. It's not just an in the moment exercise. It's something that people can set some goals for themselves and mm -hmm. take part in and then, you know, hopefully they can reach out to you. I hope they all get back to me with it. Yeah. That's all I can ask. So before we wrap up, our last question is something we'll be asking all of our guests at the end of each episode. If you went back 10 years and met yourself, what's one thing you would share with him? That is one exceptional question. <laughs> All right, 10 years back. 10 years back, um, had just moved to Charleston, South Carolina from Washington, D.C. There was a lot of change and a lot of motion in my life at that moment. If I can put the couple of strands of our talk together into that moment, I would tell that younger person Take the time to figure out what you will do, where you want to focus, because I spent some time very confused and flipping between slightly different things at that point, and take the risk of working on exactly what you need to be working on. Don't get tied up in what anybody else is doing. Don't depend necessarily. I believe in interdependence, but I don't believe in dependency. And I think I was asking others to do more for me than I was necessarily doing for myself. So the encouragement would be focus and take the action to take you to the place you want to get to. I'm very fortunate that I'm in the place I'm in. 
But 10 years ago, I think I was not certain. And I'm really excited by the opportunities now. But I think I could have gotten here a little sooner with some of that. And that actually makes me wonder, I, I just thought of this, but yeah. do you ever find yourself looking years in the future? All the time. All the time, actually. My, I had a corporate father who always was talking about, we have to have our five-year plan, our 10-year plan, our 15-year plan. And interestingly, um, that's something that comes up in my marriage all the time. Do we have a five-year plan? Do we have a 10-year plan? Do we have a 15-year plan? Um, I don't think I did it as well as I should have 10 years ago. I think I'm, I hope, knock on wood, I'm doing a little bit better right now. And if I sit here, and I will promise you that when I walk out of this conference room, and when I sit down for the first quiet moment I have a little later in the day, I'm going to jot some thoughts out on exactly that. What's my focus? Where is it that I really want to go? What are the risks I wish to take, the, the ones that I want to take on? What are the ones that I am going to protect myself from? Please don't think that I'm telling everybody to take on every risk that you confront. That's not it. Hmm. But be thoughtful and be intentional about those that you can take on. And I, thanks to this conversation, I'll do that. John, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. This really has been an absolute pleasure for me. I really appreciate it. For me as well, Matt. Thank you. Next week, we'll hear a talk on the theme of Broken by Catherine Winch from Creative Mornings in Richmond, Virginia. If you are leading your life and running your life to impress other people or make other people proud of you, it is a path to nowhere happy. Our thanks to John Zinser and everyone at Creative Mornings, especially for the HQ team in Brooklyn, New York, for letting us use their conference room. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Lindsay in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning, remember it's singular, and use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. Creative Mornings.